You're listening to The Mix on Civ Mix, hosted by Liz Benjamin and Joe Bonia. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here in The Mix. We are changing things up a little bit. I'm alone without my partner in crime, Joe Bo, but I have another Joe with me. Joe Alandado is on the board, so I want to thank him for being here and for also doing all that he does. And it's kind of been a little wonky of late because, you know, it's summer and people are on vacation and things get busy and then on top of that pandemic. But some sort of semi-normal things are still happening, like book publications, (laughs) as it turns out. People are still writing and releasing really good reads. And I'm going to be talking about one of them today. I think it's a really important book. It's by a friend of mine, Christopher Riano. You might know him. Um, He was at one point the counsel for the State Liquor Authority, the youngest individual ever to hold that position and the first LGBTQ individual ever to hold that position. We're gonna talk about that a little bit, but the book is called Marriage Equality from Outlaws to In-Laws. Also, there's a co-author, Professor William Eskridge Jr., who has been on the front lines of the debate over same-sex marriage for decades. And he's a legal scholar. He first argued in the early 1990s for a right to marriage equality. And this debate has been going on for a really long time. People in New York followed it probably closely here in this state. I was a reporter at the time and I covered it and it was incredibly moving. Um, I did see it fail. And then subsequently I saw it succeed. And I did listen to the debate that was led by Assemblyman Danny O'Donnell of Manhattan, a Democrat who also happens to be married to a man. And now he is, that is, because at the time he wasn't able to. And I remember him very clearly holding up a piece of paper and saying, I just want this. I mean, ostensibly this was a marriage license. And it's the same thing that some of you, he said, have had three or four times. Like, so little did you think of it that you just sort of did it and did it again and did it again and did it again and you could but he was unable to marry the person that he loved who he said actually saved his life and they had been together I think his partner Johnson's college his husband now who's also a really lovely guy so but this is a very hot button issue as all of you know and marriage equality is something that I think a lot of us who are, you know, married to people of the opposite sex and are able to do so kind of take for granted and complain about, I know I do complain about marriage a lot. And uh, it really was something that people fought for for a very long time. And this book sort of gives the whole breadth of the story. It's big. It's like 900 and change pages. That's a lot. That includes the indexes though. So don't get spooked. It's worth a read. It's not an academic tome. It is a narrative that is pushed forward by the stories of the individuals who were involved in this movement from the get-go. And those stories are heartbreaking and also riveting. But in addition, these authors did not overlook the opposition. The opposition to marriage equality, the conservative movement, if you will, the Catholic Church, that played such a big role in the breadth of this debate. It's really worth a read. So I'm thrilled that Christopher Rayano agreed to join me. And I'm going to bring you that interview now. I hope you enjoy it. 
Catch new episodes of The Mix each week exclusively on CivMix.com. Hello, we are back and we are mixing things up a little bit. You see what I did there? Mixing. Yeah, there are so many puns and so little time involving mix. But I have someone with us who's really special and has done something really important. His name is Christopher Oriano. He, you, may, you may know him in his previous incarnation, some of the folks who are listening, as the attorney or the counsel for the state liquor authority, right? You were the youngest ever to have that position. Sir. I was, and I was the first person who, first LGBTQ person to have that position. So what was it, before we dive into the, re- the real reason you're here, what was that like? I actually think it was incredible because in, in many ways, especially considering the history of the state liquor authority and its impact on you know, the LGBTQ rights movement, right? Because you have what are known from the late 60s as the sip-ins, right? Mm-hmm. You have this, this incredible lead up to the Stonewall, um, you know, the Stonewall Inn and everything that happened at Stonewall. And, and to be really the first person as the chief civil prosecutor for the entire state of New York when it comes to the alcoholic beverage control law and to be in the same seat that you know was was occupied by others who who really enforced the law were the ones that you know interpreted the law the way that they did back then um it was an incredible experience and one that you know i was very very pleased to have especially since there's very few people at the age of 30 uh, 31 who can say you know i was the chief counsel for state agency yeah, and also, I mean, historically, I mean, I, maybe maybe I'm sort of just thinking of it through this lens of like too much television and movies about like, you know, the, the liquor business, but I'm thinking way back in the day in like Prohibition when it was sort of the, the purview of the mob and like organized crime, it was very like macho dominated or that's how people think of it, I think. You know, and I think it hasn't necessarily changed that much in some ways. One of the things that I was always very impressed by was still to this day, especially in some of the uh, more uh, organized pieces of the the alcohol control business. So if you look at the wholesaler market and you look at the, the, uh, the market for various different pieces of whether it's on-premise or off-premise, it's actually extraordinary extraordinary uh, part of the American business system. I mean, it's a $40 billion industry yeah. in the state of New York alone. Um, and there's, there's a very small number of people nationally that control the national market. So if between my old position and really the person who has that same job in California, Texas and Florida and Illinois, I mean, they literally the five those five people control the national market so it was an amazing experience that's kind of crazy did that like motivate you I mean I don't it's a very thin line that I'm gonna now try and make in terms of connecting the dots between (laughs) that experience I mean and also your personal experience as as an LGBTQ individual but between that and this amazing book that you've written, I mean, first of all, like what what motivates a person to say, I know I'm going to sit down and write the definitive history of the marriage equality movement in the U.S. It's going to take me seven years of like insanity. And, and you collaborated with an amazing human being mm-hmm. who I know we both adore, but it's just um, it's just that so such a massive undertaking. I mean, did you 
what motivated you to do that? And did anything in your in your old position? I mean, you actually did it while you were working. That's no, like not a nothing no. burger job. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think the thing that was so interesting about that job is obviously it is not a nine to five. It is much more of a five to nine because all of the fun stuff happens, right? All the interesting stuff around the state happens later in the day, obviously when you're dealing with alcoholic beverage control. So I think, you know, in many ways, I've always looked at being an attorney as what's written here in New York on your certificate. So on your certificate, you're known as a counselor at law. And, right. and I've always really embraced that counselor role, whether it was when I was a partner at my old firm, whether it was as counsel to the authority, whether it was as assistant counsel to the governor. I've always looked at that as, as the role that you really occupy, as the trusted advisor, as, as the person people go to for that advice and counsel. And so I think in many ways in that role, I, I've always had this duality between my academic work and my work on faculty at Columbia, and then my work as, as a practicing attorney. And I've, I've always thought since the very beginning that as opposed to trying to pick one, it was better for me to find ways to do both. So, so you stop sleeping? Yeah, so essentially the book in many ways was written between 2 a.m. and 5 or 6 a.m. I mean, that what? is- What, you're a vampire, like yeah. that's insane. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it, it's 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 the best time of day because in two or three hours you can write 10-ish pages and you can take your notes and really think about it and when things come up jot down other notes and and put together a work you know a, a book like this and have that academic achievement at the same time that you can have these professional achievements well okay i mean we'll leave aside someday you'll have to i mean look i get up at three o'clock in the morning i'm yeah. a um like I'm a big early morning person and it is really helpful to do because people are not sending you, there's not all the incoming that you exactly. need to Exactly, and the calls aren't coming and the, the, the text messages and the emails. Mm -hmm. No, but this book, I mean, you and Bill, who's your co-author, Bill Erskine, is, am I saying his last Eskridge. name? Eskridge. Yes. sorry, professor. And he's, people should really, one day I'll wrangle him on here, but he's just, he's a definitive human being like, and really also a gem of a person, he is. which um, may, probably made this easier for you because you spent some really, a lot of quality time with mm -hmm. him. Oh yeah. Traveling and, you know, interviewing and, and I could not, I, I, at this point, you know, everybody says you're going to spend so much time with your co-author. It's so interesting to see how the relationship changes over the time that you write something like this. And I, I'm the first to say I'm closer to Bill now than ever we had. But you still like each other. Which oh, is absolutely. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so the thing that was so amazing is that you did this book, the book, and I've actually said this before because I've, this is not the first time I've interviewed about you about this book, which um, I'll let, I'll, I'll give people a little hint about that. But um, we actually did a little thing for the State Bar Association uh, and you had the LGBTQ, it's not a section yet, committee, is it mm -hmm. now? Yeah, um, yeah. So this book is based about, it's based on people. That's what makes it so amazing that the story, when did you and Bill recognize that this was a story you wanted to tell through people's experiences? That's so interesting. You know, I would say right from the get go, because I remember when we first sat down to talk about possibly doing this and, and Bill, as you remember from when we all chatted together previously, you know, has all of these incredible historical stories that he can remember from his time experiencing personally so many of the things that happened in the 60s and 70s and, and, and can you know, really relate 
and, and talk deeply about some of those those moments. And and I have looked at this through my own lens, which is younger and and is is more contemporary. And yet we continue to see ways to marry our views. And we continue to see ways in which our stories and the stories we knew really fit into a pattern of a larger story. And I, I think that's why, as we tell this history of changes in the family and changes in religion and changes in the constitution, we tell the story of people because it is people together who made those changes possible and who are continuing to make those changes possible. And, and one thing that's really ironic, and, and we also have discussed this before, is that you know, just as you, just as the movement and you're sort of um, writing the history of the movement and I, I, I'm just gonna repeat, I'm gonna have said this earlier in the, in the lead into this, but I just wanna repeat that the book's, the title of the book is Marriage Equality from Outlaws to In-Laws, which is a very cool title and there's some entendres there, but it, the irony is that you're actually, some people would say that you're defending or you're writing the, the history in defense of, in some ways, an outdated construct that people are now starting to shed and redefine. You know, you have not just couples, but you have throuples or you mm -hmm. have people who open their marriages or you have people, but you fought for the right or you did, or you chronicle the people who fought for the right to redefine something. First, you have to have something in order to redefine it or shed it altogether, but you can't change it if you can't get it to begin with. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that I love about what you just mentioned is through this battle, it is the LGBTQ rights movement that has not only secured, as you just said, this conservative concept, this you know, marriage itself is this conservative idea, but, but has created an incredible panoply of options of, of relationships. So you have civil unions, you have domestic partnerships, you still have registered partnerships, you have all of these very unique structures legally that continue to exist today because of the movement and you have this understanding and i think that's why my favorite chapter is probably the last chapter about the families you choose on the idea that you should be able to create in some way you know your own vision of how your household looks and there are ways legally to do that and there, there are ways that the law can recognize and understand that these are dynamic and changing ideas and concepts. What story of like the individuals that you chronicled their histories and their battles, is there, do you have a favorite? You know, I'll, I, I will say this, I have a ton of different stories that, that resonate very deeply with me, but I think one of my favorites comes actually back to New York. And it's really, it's the story of Brashi. And Brashi was this case that came up through New York, through the New York Court of Appeals. And, and the reason this case matters in, in many ways is because what you have here is you have both the intersection of the AIDS crisis and the, the idea that you can choose a family and you have this, you know, the, the, the idea of this New York City rent, you know, stabilized control department, you have uh, a couple that's lived in there for a long time, one of them dies of AIDS, and, and the other one says, I'm going to fight to continue to be able to stay in this apartment. And it goes through the courts, it goes to the Court of Appeals. At the time, the Court of Appeals, obviously seven, one of the judges recused themselves, so it's six. And they argue that I should be able to choose my family, and I should be able to create this construct that the law did not define in New York. 
And originally the votes after they retire and they decide to you know, take the original poll are 3-3. Three, three. So the court is split. And as you, you know, and other people know from the Court of Appeals, the Court of Appeals does not issue split decisions when it, when it can avoid it. It tries very hard to issue uniform and clear decisions. And you have this incredible background of you know, former Judge Kay and all of these people that are grappling. And you end up with this very conservative judge, Judge Satone, writing this opinion. And he says, in many ways, he doesn't even, he tries to avoid the addressing the sexuality of the occupants, but instead says, we here in New York, we don't define family. And in many ways, family is who you spend your time with and who you live with and who you mm -hmm. pay bills with. And it's this, I'd say it's this very New York concept that many people in the city and elsewhere in the state understand it because so many people do choose families in the state of New York. And it's beautifully written. It's this beautiful story. The clerks, you know, are around to talk about it. The and and it's just such a quintessential moment in in this in the book that sticks with me because I could tell during the interview process how dedicated people were to this particular case. This case resonated with all of the judges, and that doesn't always happen. What I mean, also, I, I should note, and we're not going to have time to get totally into it, but you and Bill were very careful. This is not just, so, so people are not getting the wrong idea here. First of all, it's not just a New York story, but rather a national story. So that's mm -hmm. something that people should keep in mind. But also it's not, the story is not one-sided. You, you really took pains to make sure that you included the history in its entirety, which includes um, discussions with some conservative anti-marriage equality, equality uh, advocates and, and jurists. Absolutely. And, and I think what that allows us to do is it allows us to tell the broader story of both the pro-marriage equality movement and the anti-marriage equality movement and how in many ways those two groups you know, occupied an incredible piece historically in the marriage equality you know, a movement and the LGBTQ rights movement. But it allows us to tell the story of the LGBTQ rights movement with a greater clarity, because as opposed to just telling one part of the story, or as opposed to just saying, here's a plaintiff, here's an individual, here's how they attempted to get their marriage recognized through the courts or through the legislature or through execu you know, executive action. Instead, what it lets us do is it's, it allows us to tell how the other, you know, the, the anti-marriage equality side was able to rally around certain aspects and how the reality of the situation is, is that in many, in many parts of, this, of the book, as you know, the anti-marriage uh, folks are not, they're not demons. In many ways, they actually helped create and push forward uh, pro-LGBTQ policies. <laughs> and, and I think that's actually what's so extraordinary is is even in places like Utah, it, it, it's actually in many, it's the Latter-day, the Church of Latter-day Saints that in many times in our work actually helps to, to solidify LGBTQ right protections. Um, and, and so I think that adds to the richness and it adds to allowing us to really tell the, as much as we can this definitive story. What is the next step do you see? I mean, you know, some people say like, um, the LGBTQ rights movement is, you know, analogous with, or is the next level of civil rights, for example, you know, and now we're also seeing this extraordinary moment where we're having discussions about 
um, equity and social justice and Black Lives Matter and um, you know police brutality and mistreatment of people and and then you have the on top of that layered because of the the moment that we're in in terms of economic crisis a really definitive uh, split between the haves and the have-nots of the world which is becoming in, the, the chasm between those two groups is becoming really stark right absolutely so, what what is the next what do you see as the next frontier if you will from an lgbtq rights perspective i mean uh, we're hearing more now for example about trans rights because the the uh, trans community is really vulnerable and uh, often uh, members of that community are really persecuted and have a very difficult time so that's maybe maybe that's it maybe it's about surrogacy which you know in new york we know is a battle maybe it's i don't even know it's about you know a same same-sex marriage divorces which you and i have discussed as well and once you actually decide that you want to tie yourself to someone then perhaps later you decide maybe not so much right well i think in many ways you're right and if you look at what's happened in the last five years since marriage equality became uh nationalized in 2015 I mean, we, you only even see employment protections extended under the Civil Rights Act um, this year. I mean, that only happened a few months ago. So you could be married in, in all states, but you could also have been fired in most states, not some states, most states in the United States until just, you know, two-ish months ago. Oh, so I think, so which is, which is amazing to think about. And that's absolutely what the law of the land was uh, until June. So... I think there are tons of things that come next. I think there are questions, and I'm so pleased to have seen that the, you know, the last five years have shown transgender rights come to the forefront. I think you see an incredible shift from 2015 to 2020 in, in people displaying as non-binary, which I think really also adds to the richness of the community and the richness of how the law needs to address looking at the community more broadly. But I think in many ways, when you look at social justice, racial justice, you know, the femi uh, feminist rights, and look at the, that broadly, you're absolutely right. We are at a time where we're thinking about how all of these pieces fit together. And, and I would hope the one thing that comes from the book, the one thing that I take away from having done this project is that groups and individuals in social justice movements are stronger together. They're stronger when they work together. It was when uh, the LGBTQ rights movement worked with other social justice organizations and, and racial justice organizations and, and, and embraced the NAACP's work that they do and embraced, uh, you know, looking at how women have really, you know, moved the ball forward when it comes to uh, mm -hmm. rights. It's at those moments where change happens, it's not when division is the primary discussion point. Division breaks down opportunities to make political change. And so I hope if there's one thing that comes from the story we, we tell, it is that in 50 years, it is shocking. It is shocking to see a, a the homosexuals and LGBTQ persons who, who can take something where in 1967, it is illegal under, it's a criminal law, essentially, right. to be LGBTQ. To go from that all the way to marriage equality, now you go to 2020, you have you know, employment equality, you have a, a, a rise in transgender rights, a rise in non-binary rights. 
that is extraordinary. And frankly, it's because of unity. It's not because of division. So I want to I want to end on something that might be a little bit esoteric, but there's still a big wall to get over. I mean, it's one thing to change the law, which is a significant achievement. And I, I, I mean, I certainly not disagreeing with you in that, but it's another thing to change public opinion. Now, when you look at the polls, right, people say, oh yeah, same-sex marriage. Like I totally, I'm down with that. I mean, that's part of the, I mean, it just changed. I don't know that now maybe we're seeing the only thing I can think of in terms of a social movement and, and it's not really so much of a social movement is like the legalization of cannabis, for example, yeah. like, like um, views on that have changed so significantly for adult use, not just medical, but people, it's one thing for people to tell a pollster, yeah, I'm down with same-sex marriage. And it's another thing about the way that they treat people or the perceptions that they have. And it's that public perception and that feeling, the way that people think about the other that they find threatening or they don't understand. That's a whole different battle. And I, I don't think we're there yet as mm. a nation. You know, it's interesting because I, I think in many ways, you're right. The law is very different than how people feel necessarily. And and I think one of the things that, that I noticed while writing the book is that if you really get down to it, at some point, everybody feels like the other and everybody feels like they're not included. And, and you can see public opinion shift and we have a whole chapter on the work with public opinion where you know, there was a long time where the movement focused on this equality argument, you should treat us equal, we shouldn't be treated differently. And that argument didn't really move the needle. It was instead when people reframed the narrative and broke down and looked at how instead we can find ways to break down that wall and as opposed to saying, you should treat us equal, it was instead a, well, how would you want to be treated? Mm. And suddenly people shifted when they realized that it wasn't this in-group, out-group dynamic, but instead it's my neighbor, it's my cousin, it's, 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 my, you know, it's somebody in the family and somebody in my congregation. That changes that calculus. And I think that same change has to happen and will continue to happen and will happen with transgender rights, with non-binary rights, with other uh, organizations and groups because it, it, that is the movement forward and that is the trajectory and I do think that public opinion has changed and it's going to continue to change no different than how many times people feel that religion is this monolith mm -hmm. and religion is not a monolith at all it mm -hmm. has shifted di just in dynamically and in extraordinary ways even the most conservative religions when it comes to looking at LGBTQ rights. And, and it's because people in congregations have come out, people have changed the narrative, changed the dynamic. That's going to continue to happen. And it's only going to happen more and more as, as people feel more and more comfortable being out in various different situations with their significant other. Um, and that's a, that's a continuing conversation that, that moves forward. And yet, amid all of this, we see a rise in, in, in hate crime. Yeah. That's I true. mean, it's so there's so many dichotomies that we are facing in this moment. It's it, at the same time that we see, you know, renewed freedoms and, and movement of public opinion, you see those who continue to insist upon embracing, you know, what I would say, like, old ways of treating people and viewing people and prejudiced and bigoted, let's just 
call it what it is, behavior, feel emboldened. It, they might yet be in the minority, but they're loud and also active in many instances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you see that often in social rights movements and social justice movements, you see the pendulum swing. So even after you have marriage equality in 2015, you start to have all of these lawsuits that don't all go the way people would think when it comes to, all right, so you can get married, but what about kids? What about adoptions? How about this? What, and suddenly you what see the rise. What exactly? It's, and exactly. It's, it's, you see this pendulum swing, win on marriage, and then immediately we start dealing with all these transgender rights lawsuits. And, and that is the nature of law in many ways and the nature of social movements in many ways. But, but over time, historically, you know, it does move forward towards equality. Over time, historically, we do better as we work together. And I think that will continue to happen. But you're right, there are always pain points as that moves forward. You know what I love so much about you? I you're, do not. No. You're super optimistic. <laughs> I am. All of my students, you know, all of my students say that same thing. They always say, you're always very optimistic, even in times that don't always, you know, call for optimism. And I think, I, I think in many ways, as a student and a scholar of, of constitutional law and constitutional theory, I, I can see the way in which things have moved towards the better. And not always at the moment and not always in ways that you can see today, but if you look at 200 and almost 50 years, you can see us move towards the better. So I have to remain optimistic and remain positive that that's going to continue moving forward because there have to be people that are engaged in the system that are helping move that forward to continue to create you know, a more perfect union. Well, I think that's a perfect place to leave this. Um, just to remind everybody, the book is called Marriage Equality from Outlaws to In-Laws. Christopher Rayano is the co-author, along with his, his official title is Professor, Professor William N. Eskridge Jr. <laughs> but we know him as Bill. As Bill, right. <laughs> and um, he's a really sort of a teddy bear of a human being and yeah. a brilliant guy. So this book will be available. You can pre-order it now on Amazon or any other um, outlet that you like, but it's officially out on August 18th. Is that yes. correct? Yes, on Tuesday. Yep. So um, it's a triumph and it's getting really great views and I'm super, super proud of you. And I'm so thrilled that you were able to be with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That's so kind of you. Catch new episodes of The Mix each week exclusively on civmix.com.